www.netivyah.org. The Basics of Faith, a five-part series recorded February 1994 in North Atlanta Church of Christ. Part 105. Building Blocks of Faith. Uh, one of the things that I've observed in the Churches of Christ and in general in the, in the whole Christian camp in America is that everybody is worried about all these very important things like divorce and remarriage, and they are important. And like uh, many of the other things that worry and split churches. And the very basics of our faith have been neglected in the last couple of decades. And these luncheons I want to deal with some, some of the basics. And of course the basic of all the basics is that there is one God. And it's a message that's not being heard very much. Today, in the Christian camp, people pray to Jesus, people pray to the Holy Spirit. They pray to the Holy Spirit. And God the Father, they've sent to Acapulco for vacation. <laughs> and uh, Jesus has become strictly a messenger. And the only one that is active and well and functioning is the Holy Spirit. Which we have to give a lot of credit to the Holy Spirit. It's very important. But we must not forget the oneness of God. Now, you would be surprised how many times in the New Testament the oneness of God is proclaimed. One of the important passages for Gentiles is Romans chapter 3, verse 30, in which the Apostle Paul affirms the oneness of God by asking this question. From verse 29. Or God is the God of the Jew only? Is he, the God of the, is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of the Gentiles also. Since indeed God, who will be justified, just, who will justify the circumcised by faith, and the uncircumcised through faith, is one. In the King James, it reads a little bit different. It says, God is one, who will justify the circumcision um, by faith and the uncircumcision through faith. God is one. He is the God of the Jews and He is the God of the Gentiles. And this aspect is very, very important. The oneness of God. If we compromise in any way the oneness of God and what is called in theology monotheism, we are no better than idolaters. The prophets of old and the New Testament writers reaffirmed this more than any other doctrine that is held by the Christian world. Now I believe in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And I believe that the three constitute God. Yeah. But one of the things that I was trained in and affirmed 
and accepted in my early years as a student in the United States is that we don't subscribe to any creed. Isn't that right? Now, there are written creeds and there are unwritten creeds. And the way one of the members of our congregation, Dr. David Stern, says, uh, the unwritten creeds are usually more dangerous than the written creeds. They're dangerous because they're not so clear. And everybody can modify them in the way that he wants to. The written creeds, they're, they're written by whoever got together in some conference and wrote the creeds. Yeah? And devised whatever philosophical or theological modes that he had uh, to answer the needs of the church in his day, in his place. Most of the creeds, by the way, that were written were written for political reasons, not for theological reasons. If you read the background of how they got together, how Constantine got all the priests and the leaders of the church in, in Nicaea, you'll see that the agenda was a political agenda. It wasn't a theological agenda. The same is true with the Westminster Creed. They had problems in the church in England and divisions. And so they got together at Westminster to solve the political problems of the church by making a creed that either will include all the factions and, or exclude the factions that they didn't like in the church. That's what creeds were made for. Now, as a result of my uh, training and teaching in the churches of Christ, I really bought into the system that we have no creed. And I've tried all my life uh, to fight the tendency of making creeds. Because, especially because of this doctrine of monotheism, of the oneness of God. This morning, I shared a passage in the devotional from Malachi chapter 2.10. And I want to share it again for those that weren't here in the morning. It's an interesting passage. Malachi was a prophet of the 8th century B.C. The time of the 8th century B.C. was when the split between northern tribes of Israel and Judah and Benjamin was the roughest. <laughs> In fact, Isaiah chapter 1. Isaiah and Malachi were contemporaries, by the way. And Isaiah chapter 1 describes the situation and uh, of the circumstance in which Israel was found in Isaiah 7, another one of these chapters. The ten northern tribes had attacked Judea. And the priests of the temple in Jerusalem were, how should I say, driving a wedge between their cousins in the north and the Judeans. Their priests were saying that God of Israel has abandoned the ten northern tribes. Of course, they went into idolatry. And they were out of the will of God, but the priests were saying, God is with us, and he is not with them. 
that Malachi, who was a prophet of God, of Jehovah, objected very strongly to this technique of saying, you know, we are doing it God's way, and you are doing it your way. And uh, in chapter 2, verse 10, this is what the prophet is saying. Do we not all have one Father? Has not one God created us? Why do we deal treacherously against each, each against his brother, so as to profane the covenant of our fathers? In other words, the prophet is saying, just a minute, aren't these people our brothers? Aren't they also children of God? Don't we have one Father, one God for both of us? If we do have one God, there are some moral constraints that arise from the oneness of God. And they can be shown from the New Testament as well. But here in a very concise way, he states it. If we have one father, the implication is that all mankind are brothers. There is no bastards in creation. There is no human beings that were created by anybody else but by the same father that God, our God, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And this is an affirmation that is not so simple. When we see factions that are warring, even Christian factions are warring, like in Ireland, the war that's been going on for 60 years. Yeah. 60 years they have been killing each other and bombing each other by the IRA and uh, other factions in Ireland. They are both Christians. When they go to church, one goes to a Catholic church, one goes to a Protestant church, yeah, who are they praying to? Who are they looking at? At the cross in front of both of their churches is the cross. And when you talk, try to, to teach Jews or Muslims about Jesus Christ, you know one of the first things that they say, how come you say Jesus Christ is the Prince of Peace? Why can't the Christians have peace among themselves? And that doesn't go only between Catholics and Protestants. It goes within the churches within the denominational structures and within the non-denominational denominations like the Church of Christ is. <laughs> it goes in, inside of us. And part of the reason that it goes inside our bodies and local congregations is because we don't realize the oneness of God and the implication that that oneness requires. Notice another implication from another verse before I uh, go here in, in Malachi again. From Hebrews chapter 11 verse 6 where it says, He that cometh to God must believe that he is and that he is the rewarder of all those who diligently seek him. Uh, that's a very powerful verse. He that cometh to God must believe that He is. Now that word that He is is very interesting. Uh, 
the word is. What is the gerund of the word is? The gerund in grammar. To be. Right? The gerund is to be. That means that it is a reality. He that comes to God must believe that he is a reality, that he is. You'd be surprised. There was a guy by the name of Dan, I forgot his last name, who was an elder in New York, in Manhattan. Uh, one of the executives in IBM, one of the top echelon executives of IBM. <coughs> his brother used to preach in Michigan. Does anybody know his name? Anyway, he was an elder for 10 years. One Sunday morning he got up, said he has an announcement to make. And he said that he resigns from the eldership. And he's leaving the church. The reason that he gave. Now this is a guy who was raised in the churches of Christ, graduate of a Christian college, an elder for over ten years, he got up and he made an announcement that he's resigning from the eldership and leaving the church because for the last ten years he hasn't believed that there really is a God. But he functioned as an elder and he was a good elder for ten years. But he didn't believe that there is a God. It's possible to be a part in the system, folks, to be religious, to be faithful to the church, to go to church regularly, to give of your means, to pray without believing that there really is a God. It's difficult for us to grasp it, but it is true. It was true in the days of Isaiah and Malachi. It's also possible to be a Christian and not to believe in one God. I want to tell you something that might shock you. Most of the Christian world is not monotheistic. A lot of the charismatic movement is not monotheistic. It's dualistic. Yeah. Dualism means that you believe in two powers. In the power of good, you can call God, you can call Jehovah, you can call Jesus. But in the power of evil, that you can call Satan or demons or whatever, the minute that you divide creation, you divide creation into two powers, either practically or theologically, you are no longer a monotheist. The biblical doctrine of God is that there is one God, the originator of all things. The creator of all things. Only one God. The devil is subservient to God and has no authority outside of what God gives him. Now, I'm sorry that God gave him a lot of authority. <laughs> I'm sorry about that. If I was God, I would have designed it differently. <laughs> but I'm not. And there is a devil. And he's very real. But he is not 
a threat to God. And this world, yeah, is only under God's final word of control. And the flesh is created by God as well, and not by the devil. The devil has not created anything. He's been given dominion over something. Yeah. But he hasn't created or originated anything. Only one God. Now, there are many passages in the Old Testament that describe this. One of the best is Isaiah 45, verses 5 through 7. Yeah. But there you've got the Protestant translation into English that doesn't really reflect uh, the Hebrew. There it, it says, in Hebrew it says, God created good and made evil. Yeah? And in the English translation it says, made calamity. Yeah. Instead of evil, calamity. And in the, in the, every translation, of course, is a commentary. And every commentary reflects more the ideas of the writer rather than the ideas of the text itself. Yeah. And the translator that translated the Bible made many, many such uh, tendentious translations. Yeah. But, but in the Hebrew it says strictly, make light, darkness, good, and evil. And it can be demonstrated in many ways. If you have questions, I'll be glad to answer. But, but back to Malachi. The second implication of Malachi is not only that God is one and all of us are brothers, but that when we treat each other treacherously, that's the word used in, the, in my in the NIV. When we treat each other as human beings treacherously, we are profaning the covenant of God with our fathers. And basically, what the implication is, we are compromising His oneness. It's got great implications. In other words, it's not enough to worship and to believe in one God. That faith in one God has to come from the vertical to the horizontal level. Yeah. It has to be expressed on the horizontal level in our relationship with other human beings. <coughs> Far-reaching. Far-reaching implications. Uh, let me show you one more verse that has to do with this in, in the letter of Jacob. Yeah, you know? There is no James in the Bible. Such a thing never never existed. There was no James, the brother of Jesus, and there was no James, the apostle, and there was no James, the epistle. Didn't exist. You open a Tendale Bible, how many of you know what the Tendale Bible is? Ralph. There, what is the Tendale Bible? The English translation was preceded the uh, King James. Yes. William Tendale. William Tendale, the English translated that preceded the King James <coughs> authorized it 
translation. What was there instead of James? Jacob. Yaakov. Jacob. It was Jacob, the brother of Jesus, and Jacob, the apostle, and the epistle of Jacob. In fact, in any other language, it's still Jacob, except in English. Now, you know why, why we have James instead of Jacob? For a number of reasons. One, the word James and Jacob start with J. <laughs> the second reason is that the king that financed the translation in James wanted to be mentioned in the Bible. That's the truth. He wanted to be mentioned in the Bible and the translator didn't know where to stick him in. But they had remembered that Martin Luther, a hundred years earlier, no, 25 years earlier, had made the statement that James is but, that Jacob is but a strawy epistle. Yeah? So, they did two things. They stuck the king's name in the Bible, and everywhere the word Jacob was mentioned in the New Testament, they turned it into James. Yeah? But they also got back at the king because James is but a strawy epistle. That's, in other words, not very highly revered by the Protestants in those days. So that's how you got James. But in James chapter 2, verse 19. You believe in one, you believe that God is one. The, uh, uh, Jacob writes, you believe that God is one, and you do well. Very hard part, second verse. The demons also believe and shudder. The implication of this verse is sh shattering, really especially to the Protestant world, that has interpreted the word to believe or to have faith as an affirmation of a fact. I believe something that means I affirm that this fact is true. Right? I have a, 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 a statement of doctrine and I, I believe that statement. What does it mean I believe? I affirm that it is true. But this kind of meaning of the word faith is, I would say, very, very, very seldom used in the New Testament. You know what the word faith really implies? <coughs> Trust. Insurance. Or oh, assurance, excuse me. Assurance. That's what it really implies. <coughs> It's very evident when you try to witness to Jewish people or to Arab people in the Middle East. It has happened to me literally hundreds of times where I sat with somebody and I showed him the scriptures. I said, folks, here it is. The prophecies are fulfilled. Isaiah said so and so is fulfilled in the life of Jesus. And, and 
And they say, yes, we agree. We agree. Jesus is the one that comes closer to what the Messiah ought to be according to the prophets than anybody else. We agree. So what? So you have to give your life to Jesus. You have to repent. You have to die to yourself so you rise into the newness of life. So we don't want to. But you agree that he's the Messiah. Yes, we agree. We agree. That's true. But we don't want to give our life to him. There's professors in Jerusalem, an Orthodox rabbi that know the New Testament better than most Christians do. To put it this way, better than most Christian professors do. World-renowned scholars of the New Testament. All their life they've dealt with the New Testament. They don't believe in Jesus. Tour groups that come, and they have Jewish guides, or Muslim guides, and the guy takes them and says, Jesus did this here, here is the place where he ascended to heaven, here is the place where he was crucified, here is the Garden of Gethsemane, here is this, and they quote you New Testament passages, the tour guides. Yeah? And Christians often come how could he not believe he knows so much of the Bible? Yeah? Because the essence of it is trust. And the essence of believing in one God is putting your trust in Him. Not believing only that He is, like in the book of Hebrews. But putting our trust in Him on very mundane and practical things. Um, I can tell you dozens of incidents in my life in which I put myself in the hands of God. And I had no recourse in the flesh. And I didn't know how on earth I will get out of what I got myself in. I tell you a story. How we bought the building in Jerusalem. It's one of many stories. I already told them in the devotional one of how I got from Florida to Michigan with, with 50 cents in my pocket. Yeah. But uh, I'll tell you how we bought the building. We, we worshipped for nine years in the Baptist church building in Jerusalem. The Baptists were wonderful to us. I tell you what, I don't know of any church of Christ that would be as gracious to us as the Baptists were for nine years. They knew that we're not Baptists. They knew that we don't agree with them on most of the uh, differences that exist between the churches of Christ and the Baptists. But yet they were very gracious and they allow us to rent from them at $100 a month uh, their building, and they provided the coffee and the cookies and the cleaning and everything, and the electricity and the heat. Believe me, they were subsidizing us by six or $700 a month between the, co the, the, the coffee and the cookies by themselves. <laughs> and uh, we met there for nine years. 
But we had trouble, you won't believe. For months, every time we met there, the big picture windows, bigger than this panel over here, of the Baptist bookstore were broken in the middle of our services. Now Ralph knows what, what, what I'm talking about because uh, when Ralph was in Jerusalem, we had for, for three or four months the same thing happened. Every time we met, the church met, hundreds of Orthodox Jews would come and, and hurl rocks and break every window. And we had to literally sneak out of the building uh, to get out of there alive. Am I telling the truth, Ralph, or not? Huh? Yes. And, uh, and so the same thing was happening to the Baptists. Uh, on Sunday morning, the city glass squad would come automatically to replace the windows. Anyway, finally the building got burned, arson. We, already, we had bombs, we had everything. Finally they burned the building to the ground. The Baptists never blamed us, but we felt it's time to get out of there. <laughs> and uh, as we were standing by the ashes of the Baptist building, as we were standing by the ashes of the Baptist building, one of the older ladies in our congregation comes to me, and I was in my house shoes and in my pajama. Because when I heard the, the burning, I was worried about my books. I wasn't worried about the Baptist building, but I had my library there. And uh, she said, you know, we won't be able to meet here anymore. And I said, sure, it takes a woman to have such perception. Then she said, we're going to have to buy our own building. And I said, with what? <laughs> so we're going to have to, you know, trust God for the money. I said, what are you talking about? How can we trust God when we don't have any money? She said, if you go and preach that Jesus Christ is the Messiah to the Jewish people and to the Arab people, and you yourself can't trust God, you ask them to lay their life on the line for Jesus, and you yourself can't trust God that He can provide the money for a building, you don't have any faith. It takes a woman. <laughs> so the next time we met, we met in a park, and uh, the lady brought that up. And I agreed that I would start looking for a place if the congregation at that time numbered 18 people would give more than $20,000 in cash. And most of them were poor, older, pensioned, or younger teenagers in our congregation in those days. Three weeks later, we set the date for the special contribution. And 
$21,000 came in. Literally, women sold their jewelry and cashed in their insurance to give the money for the building. Well, now the monkey was on my back. I started looking for a place, but after many a couple of months of looking, I was giving up. There was one more location that the real estate man had to show me. So he took me to it. It was right downtown Jerusalem, and I liked it. The price was the cheapest that I saw anywhere. It was $220,000. All we had was $21,000. So we went to the lawyer. It was an Orthodox Jewish lawyer. And I told him, this is how we're going to buy the building. We're going to pay you $20,000 now. And then, on a monthly installment, without interest, over a year, we'll pay you the rest. He said, no deal. I said, no deal, we're not buying. We walked out. All the people in our congregation were just angry. They said, we prayed about it. And we had the word of the Lord that this building is for us. And how could you, you know, negotiate that way? That was no negotiated at all. I said, this is how we're going to buy the building. If it's God's will, that's how we're going to buy it. Two weeks later, I was sitting in a coffee shop downtown Jerusalem, and uh, outdoors, and the lawyer passed by and was laughing, and he said, we sold the building to a group of lawyers that are going to make it into their office. I said, fine. If you sold it, you sold it. Inside of me, I still knew that this was the last word that God had to, to, to tell. Three months later, I was in the same coffee shop. The lawyer is coming down. He says, Joe, are you still interested in this building? I said, yes, on the same conditions that I told you. He said, it's a deal. So what happened? He said, the lawyer bought the building and paid the down payment of $20,000 and then couldn't finalize, couldn't agree among themselves and they couldn't finalize the deal and they lost the $20,000. I said, are you willing to sign the same way that I told you before? He said, yes, with one provision that the first that Within one month after the signing, you'll pay another $50,000 in a lump sum. I said, all right. That night, we went and signed. We gave the $20,000, and we had one month to get $50,000. I called people all over the United States. Nothing. Two days before the deadline, six o'clock in the morning, I get a phone call from Finland from a man that I met only for five minutes in the town of Vasa on western Finland. And the man called and said, I had three houses and the Lord impressed upon me that it is not right for me to have three houses. Now this man knew nothing about buying the building or signing the contract, or obligating ourselves. said, I sold one of my houses, and I want to give all the money to the church in Jerusalem. As a Lutheran man, he was Lutheran then. Uh, so, 
told him, you know, what a relief it was. He said, when do you need the money? I said, today. <laughs> <laughs> so he, sent, he immediately wired it yeah, from Finland to Israel to our bank account. And I hung up the phone with him half an hour later. Shira Lindsay, the daughter of Gordon Lindsay from Christ for the Nations Institute in Dallas, who lives in Israel, called. She's a Pentecostal woman. Called and said, you know, I've never helped your ministry at all. But I'd like to give $5,000. She didn't know anything about this building. The deadline was 2 o'clock the next day. At 1 o'clock the next day, one hour before the deadline, is when we got the $40,000 from Finland. And we got the $5,000 earlier that morning. And we, we, we scraped another $5,000 to make the first payment from people uh, in Jerusalem. And from then on, money came in in the strangest way, from the strangest people. One church that I never heard of, they never heard of me, somebody told them that there was the people in Jerusalem were buying a building from Bloomfield, Indiana. They sent $10,000. Later on, when I came to the States, I, I wrote them. They never answered me. Finally, I called them. I said, you gave $10,000. I'd like to come and visit you and tell you thank you in person. He said, no need, don't come. <laughs> Most of the money came from totally anonymous people in Finland. So we don't, till today we don't know who they are. One Lutheran priest that, that had a tour company, travel agent, in Finland, wrote an article about our congregation in the Helsinki Journal. And, and opened the bank account and put the money, uh, the, the account in the article that he wrote about us, and the money flowed into that account, over $150,000 of the $220,000 that the building cost us, came from anonymous people in Finland. Now, the, I thought, halfway when we already almost paid the building, I thought that, great, we're going to have money coming in from Finland. <laughs> you know what? As soon as we made the last payment, the well dried. <laughs> God was in control. Amen. Amen. There is only one God. Amen. Thank you. Nativia www.netivyah.org